Welcome to this podcast from JAMS. Since the start of the pandemic, estate planning has taken on a new urgency and given rise to scores of conflicts. To discuss some of these issues and how mediation can help, we have two JAMS neutrals with us. Our first guest is Judge Glenn Reeser, who serves as educational trainer for all trust and probate judges throughout California. Before coming to JAMS, he spent more than 20 years with the Superior Court in Ventura County, California, and before that, more than two decades as a civil litigator. We also have Lisbeth Bullmash, who has been a full-time neutral since 2002. Before practicing in the state of Texas, where she is currently based, she had an active ADR practice in Michigan and Ohio. And before starting her ADR practice, she served as a litigation attorney in a diverse array of firms. Thank you both for being with us. Elizabeth, I'll, I'll start with you. What kinds of estate planning disputes have you seen arise over the last two years? And have you noticed any patterns? Yes, we have seen a high number of deaths resulting from COVID. And these large number of unexpected and sudden deaths have meant more confusion and have resulted in a high number of airship disputes where the parties have left and died without a will or any proper estate planning. I've also seen a large number of will contests and disputes arising from blended families and sibling rivalry. That's really what we've seen as of late. And Judge Reeser, what have you been seeing? So so actually it's over a course of years, you know, in America, wealth transfers happen differently than they used to happen a lot. In, you know, in the old days, there was a significant self-made wealth. And today, while that still exists in certain pockets, more frequently wealth is transferred through family deaths and uh, trusts and estate matters. And so that seems to be where uh, large amounts of capital are exchanged. And those types of contests have risen dramatically, especially over the last five years. Elizabeth, can you talk about what attorneys can do to get ahead of these conflicts and and talk a little bit about the role mediation plays in helping attorneys resolve estate disputes? Well, first of all, I'd like to say that most judges, and maybe Judge Reeser can comment on this, uh, do not want to insert themselves in estate conflicts. Mediation is that tool that gives the parties an opportunity to not only save time, but save money and offer solutions to their clients that the court cannot offer. Uh, Attorneys can work with the mediator and other parties to dispute to craft often creative solutions to family conflicts stemming from these estate disputes. And not everyone wants the same thing. So in being creative, we can have more, we can have attorneys see more client satisfaction by using the tool of mediation. Mm-hmm. Judge Reeser, any advice you'd give to attorneys to get ahead of these disputes? So it's, it's important to appreciate how judges think about these cases, right? And, and I know in a lot of states, will contests and trust contests can be jury matters. But historically, trust contests arise in equity and in chancery. And so not in all states, but in most states, these are very judge-centric type cases. And because they arise in equity, typically, not always, but typically they're court trials. And when you have a court trial, that means the judge at the end of a case, and and these cases tend to be very fact-intensive and physician expert intensive. And, And so trials last a long time. And the judge at the end of the case, instead of asking the jury to return a verdict, 
will have to sit down and write a 20 or 30 or 40 page opinion. And judges' calendars don't usually allow for that. So many of my colleagues are loath to want to engage in, you know, in this exercise because it is so time consuming and, and any opportunity to reallocate that resource outside of the court and get a resolve is a blessing to um, my colleagues' lives, right? So, so, you know, that's a very practical answer, but that's the reality. Mm-hmm. And what have been the consequences for parties and lawyers who, who have not been prepared? I think with the advent of Zoom mediations recently with the pandemic, there is a, a real disparity that is evident in the negotiations at mediation. It's pretty obvious when a parties or parties come to mediation and they're prepared. They know what they want and they've educated the mediator ahead of time so that the mediator is in the best position to help the parties. It's pretty obvious if parties and their attorneys are not prepared, if not thought through why they're at mediation, what they really want to get out of the case at the end of the mediation. So it's it's really a cautionary tale that parties you know need to prepare and they need to not only know their case, but know in and out where their client's coming from, you know, what makes them tick and what they really want to get out of resolving the case if possible. Mm-hmm. And Judge Reeser, anything you would add? So, you know, different courts do it differently, right? Because quite often a court will want an early mediation to resolve a case before a lot of attorney fees become the tail wagging the dog in terms of, of case resolution and making it difficult to resolve. But, but quite frequently, right, all these cases or most of them involve a testamentary instrument, right? And the testamentary instrument is either a trust or a will. And that document in most cases, not always was drafted by an estate planner or a lawyer who dabbles in estate planning. And so I see very frequently counsel who haven't interviewed, if, if, if the estate planner is still living or still practicing or available, hasn't interviewed the estate planner to, to, to see what their notes say, to see what their recollection is, even as it relates to issues uh, such as capacity, undue influence, document interpretation, settler's intent, all those things. So, so that, that's, that's a critical a component of preparation. The, the second part, I think, really relates to the science, you know, and, and have has the lawyer consulted at least in, in a work product sense with a geriatric psychiatrist or a PhD psychologist with expertise in geriatrics to sort of get a, a direction on where they ought to go if they have a capacity or undue influence case. Hmm. You mentioned capacity and undue influence. Let's start with undue influence. Can you help explain that, what role it plays in these kind of disputes? So undue influence is a bit of a free-for-all, right? Because it involves somebody who prevails upon typically an elder to either create or modify a testamentary instrument. And quite often, you know, as especially in our mobile society, many family members either move away or aren't as close and someone stays and helps to take care of the their parent normally or grandparent or aunt or uncle and and so when that person naturally changes their instrument to benefit the person who's taking care of them the others wherever they are around the world sort of look at it in, in a, as a as an attempt to influence a, an equal estate plan and so it's a very common circumstance 
you know, there's a common law to undue influence and there's rules that everyone knows around the country as to, you know, the presumptions associated with undue influence. But a lot of states now are enacting statutes that more specifically define undue influence. Mm-hmm. And, and so it, it's a state-by-state analysis. But those are, those are free-for-alls because it is really what's going on in, in, in somebody's life. You know, are they isolated? Are they competent to write emails? And, and who's taking who to the lawyer's office? Whose lawyer is it? Who's sitting in on the meeting with the estate planner? I mean, there's all these questions arise. And these are not brief trials, right? They're at least a week. And what about capacity? Can you talk a little bit about how that plays out? Capacity is, is interesting because every lawyer in America learns the same rule, and it comes from Victorian England. It, it comes from uh, Lord Coburn, who was the Lord High Chancellor in the mid-1800s under Queen Victoria. And the rule was, you know, if you know who your kids are, the natural objects of your bounty, and you know what your property is, and you know you're making a will on this day of trust, then that's all the capacity you need. But medical science is different now in terms of capacity because capacity involves cognitive deficits that correlate to decision-making. And, and so the rules vary from state to state, but the whether it is the old Lord Coburn rule from Victorian England or, or some more modern analyses that correlate decision-making to cognitive deficits, it's not a lawyer determination normally, except perhaps at the most fundamental level. It really involves in medical science to a large degree and what's going on in someone's mind. It's it's a more of a scientific analysis, mm-hmm. although I'm seeing more and more psychiatrists and PhD psychologists getting involved in undue influence because of codependencies that arrive not just with cognitive dysfunction, but also with physiological issues that cause people to be reliant on others. Mm. Elizabeth, have you seen these issues play out? What's been your experience with capacity and undue influence? Well, I have to say that given what's what we've been through recently, there's been a significant cognitive decline in the elderly population. And so when we're seeing undue influence issues, they're so fact specific. And with all of the seclusion brought on by the pandemic, We've seen a lot of undue influence cases coming up where we have to look at the relationships, the circumstances, the hurried drafting of estate planning before someone's untimely death, perhaps. Look at what the parties, what their intent was. And they're very facts specific, as Judge Reeser has indicated. And they're not a slam dunk. There's a lot of science now that looks at capacity and understanding someone's mental ability to make decisions regarding a will. Now, sometimes that's a low bar depending on what state you're in, but there's a lot of pitfalls. If you know one side can bring in a professional that's going to point to the cognitive deficits and there's, you know, there's a lot to point to that someone's brain matter declines over time. So I think that the issues of both undue influence and capacity are continuing to be unraveled as the the science catches up with the circumstances that we're in now. And it really is tricky for attorneys and professionals to advise their clients as to whether they have a good opportunity to win at trial with some of these issues looming. Uh, Sometimes, you know, parties don't want to spend the money on the science, because it's very costly to have experts 
testify in court and be deposed ahead of time and to gather all the the records that are needed and the analysis. And there's analysis on the other side. So that prolongs the trial, increases the expense, and there's still someone that's going to lose in this action. So your client is still taking a great risk and going to trial. You know, perhaps the compromise is is a better option to try and get what your client wants at mediation. And Judge Reeser, in California, where you are based, how does the court system rely on mediation? How does it incorporate mediation into the, the resolution of these estate disputes? Well, that's actually a really interesting question because the landscape is changing a lot. California, historically, mediation has been, vo- been voluntary only under a older appellate authority that said the court system needs to be free. And therefore, if you send people to a uh, cost basis EDR solution that that is contrary to the rights of people and free access to the courts. But now in a case that came out just a few months ago that I happen to be involved in, the appellate court said exactly the opposite and said probate court has the absolute right to send a matter to mediation and and quite often ought to. Uh, And the California State Supreme Court denied depublication or review, which, which shows at least in my mind, that there's a resource limitation with respect to the courts, at least in California, and that the uh, the policy body, which is the state Supreme Court, uh, is looking for EDR solutions. So it's it's opening up the the courts to to thinking about compelling mediation as opposed to just suggesting it. Mm-hmm. And Elizabeth, how, how does it work in, in Texas? You know, in Texas, it's different than other parts of the country because Texas has really embraced the use of mediation, and especially in the probate court setting in across a number of counties in the Dallas-Fort Worth area. I have seen the courts order the cases to mediation. Mediation is really an integral part of the court system, and they have not only ordered it but embraced it. They still leave it up to the parties to select the mediator in some circumstances or tell the judge who they want appointed as the mediator. But it really varies on a, on a court-by-court basis. But overall, I would suggest that all the courts are integrating mediation into the process and making mediation part of the scheduling order for any case. Well, Judge Reeser, how should parties go about finding a mediator? Uh, what should they look for? How does that process work? So, so that is that's the that's the art as opposed to the science, right? Because uh, you want to think about your client, recognize you know who who they can connect with or might connect with, and find a mediator who can build rapport with the client, right? And and then you want a mediator who can be value added. So. You don't want a carrier pigeon, right? Who's just going to go back and forth between rooms, either uh, virtually or physically, and just say, you know, offer demand, offer demand. You want someone who can relate to the client, talk to the client, talk about risks and rewards, and and add value by experience in the subject matter and saying, well, here's you know, here's concerns, here's where you ought to try to leverage the other side, and, and it can be very frank with the the client as opposed to somebody who is the equivalent of a, 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 a note passing between between rooms. Mm. Elizabeth, what characteristics would you would you uh, look for in a mediator? And you know what what kind of questions should clients and lawyers be asking? 
Well, I, I agree with Judge Reeser and what he has recommended in terms of what you should look for. I think it's important for parties to interview a mediator and ask them how they conduct their mediation, how they go about preparing for their mediation. I think that's a really integral part of understanding if a mediator is going to be just carrying messages back and forth or going to going to roll up their sleeves, understand the issues and the facts and the law relating to a particular case and add value to that mediation. So in my particular practice, I approach every mediation that I have differently as a separate case. And I look specifically at at how best to orient that case to the parties and the circumstances. I may not start with a joint session if there's a high conflict and it's not going to lend itself to getting somewhere constructive. I use different tools in the toolbox in, in terms of what circumstances demand it. But you want a mediator that is going to be creative and that is going to take the time to do the appropriate preparation to be more than just carrying that one offer from one room to the other. Do they meet with your clients ahead of time? Do they read things ahead of time? Do they call you and talk about what they've read and and ask you questions that are not on the paper that may help get to yes in a particular mediation? I think those are all things that you want to know about. You want to know how hard this mediator is going to work, how passionate they are about their craft uh, to get the parties to yes. Hmm. Very good points and and a great uh, conversation. I want to thank uh, Judge Reeser and, and Elizabeth. Thank you so much. You've been listening to a podcast from JAMS, the world's largest private alternative dispute resolution provider. Our guests have been Elizabeth Bullmash and Judge Glenn Reeser. For more information about JAMS, please visit www.jamsadr.com. Thank you for listening to this podcast from JAMS.